Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, world. Welcome once again to Tuesday Talk with T. West Lou. I am your host, Louis Patron. Another exciting week. Lots of things to talk about. I'm going to try to avoid politics as much as possible. We get bombarded with it every day now. I will get into some things, however. I want to start, though, with something that affects many of us in this world or has affect many, affected many of us, and that's mother-in-laws. Harry Truman had a mother-in-law, and I want to talk about Harry Truman's mother-in-law and how he handled his mother-in-law. Uh, a man's character probably is exhibited by how he handles a mother-in-law who doesn't like him very much, and that, unfortunately, was the plight of Harry Truman. Poor Harry Truman, one of the greats, accomplished what he did while living with his mother-in-law for 33 years, a woman described, with all due respect, as a mother-in-law from hell. Margaret Madge Gates Wallace lived as a dowager. She was the top of the social hierarchy in Independence, Missouri, raised and lived in one of the biggest homes. Her family had servants, lace curtains, and Brussels carpets on the floor. Truman came from the other side of the tracks, literally. He was a farmer's son and a dirt farmer himself till he was 33. Interesting, isn't it? He never graduated from college, could not seem to hold a job down after his farming days were over. Failed as a haberdasher, lost a ton of money in a zinc mining operation that failed. Bess was well-heeled. She was the granddaughter of Independence Flower King. As far as Madge was concerned, Bess made a colossal social faux pas in marrying Truman. Truman could not afford a home for his wife, Bess, and Mar- daughter, Margaret, till he became a United States senator. Prior thereto, he lived in his mother-in-law, Madge's home. Madge thought Truman would fail as a politician, told him so repeatedly to his face, questioned his decisions while president. Even worse, she initially questioned his qualifications to be president. Madge hated Truman, never thought him good enough for her daughter. Even after he became president, he was unworthy of best. Madge never let Truman forget the low esteem in which she held him. She never referred to her son-in-law as Harry or son, always Mr. Truman, even after he became president. She was a confirmed anti-Semite gave Truman repeated hell for recognizing the new state of Israel. When Truman ran against Dewey in 1948, her opinion was that Dewey was the better man, that that Dewey would trounce Truman. She was critical uh, with Truman firing General Douglas MacArthur. She thought MacArthur was, and I quote, such a nice man. She also said she could not, quote, imagine a captain from the National Guard telling off a West General. Madge's husband, David, stepped into his bathtub one day, put a gun to his head, and pulled the trigger. Madge could never cope following the incident. She considered her husband's suicide a scandal. She became a prisoner of shame. From that day forward, she leaned heavily on Bess to take care of her. Truman assumed the responsibility also upon his marriage to Bess. Truman did a good job especially since Madge's dislike for him was obvious. When he was elected to the Senate, Madge came to Washington with the family. She and Margaret shared a bedroom in the apartment. When Truman became president, 
Madge moved into the White House where she had her own bedroom. Madge died at the age of 90 in her White House bedroom. She had lived with the president and best for 33 years. During his presidency, Truman visited Key West a total of 175 days, covering 11 separate trips. Not once did Madge join him, fortunate for the president, perhaps. Some further Truman background is in order. Truman was raised and lived his early adult life on a farm, working as a farmer. The Truman family moved to Independence when the president was six. Independence in those days was at the edge of the American frontier. Men carry knives and guns, fistfights common. Truman's mother taught him how to read starting at age five. She sat him on her lap and used the family Bible as a textbook. When Truman was courting Bess, Bess's home was far different from his. Madge's family did not work with their hands. They had no debt. They did not worry about insects, a constant concern at the Truman farm home. Truman was a good man, obviously, an excellent president, an excellent son-in-law. He put up with his mother-in-law Madge's abuse each and every year he was courting or living as man and wife with Bess. I came across an article uh, listing history's six notorious mother-in-laws. You know what's coming. Madge was one of them, right next to Catherine de' Medici. Historians suggest Truman tolerated and took care of Madge out of respect for Bess. His love for her was so great that he bore Madge's insults their entire relationship. And that's the story of Harry Truman and his mother-in-law and what he had to put up with. Uh, I have always considered Truman one of our great presidents. Uh, He was capable of making a decision and standing by it. His decisions always seemed to have been correct. Uh, He had to be a man of character because only a man of character uh, could have put up with what he did with his mother-in-law. He also did it, uh, the historians tell us, because of his great life, love, 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 for his wife, Madge. Okay, we're going to move on now. We live in a screwed-up world. Things get stranger and stranger, to me at least. Uh, I'm 81 years old. I've seen a lot over the years. Uh, I've seen a lot of changes when it comes to relationships and to sex. Uh, I could not have conceived in my youth, in my younger day, in my college days, in my early practice, same-sex marriages, transgender sex, whoever heard of the word until the last five, six years, uh, and all sorts of things. Well, with these changes come different rules that have to be followed. And the rules sometimes are hard to absorb, to fathom, maybe even to accept. I want to talk to you about a California murderer. Uh, He wanted a sex change. And he's the first United States prisoner to receive a state-funded sex change surgery. His name, Shiloh Heavenly Queen, must be his female name, 57, transgender, uh, had sex reassignment surgery, or is in the process of getting sex reassignment surgery from a man to a woman. The Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution says that prisoners, prisoners must be provided, okay, must provide inmates with medically necessary treatment. That's right, medically necessary treatment for medical and mental health conditions. 
And this, of course, would include inmates diagnosed with gender dysphoria. That's being a transgender and needing a sex reassignment uh, surgery. I wrote about this three years ago. Uh, A Supreme Court decision came down, and it was interesting. It said that, again, the prisoners were entitled, whether state or federal, they were entitled to medically necessary treatment, which the Supreme Court of the United States interpreted as and defined as the very best. You heard me, the very best medical treatment. So prisoners get better medical than most people in the United States better than I get, and I have some great plans. But they don't have any copay. They don't have any donut. They don't have to pay the first $10,000. They don't have to pay anything uh, because the, the Supreme Court of the United States says they're entitled to the very best per the Constitution of the United States. Now, what may, I'm smiling a little bit and laughing. What, what makes this whole situation funnier, sad, more sad, is that it has been interpreted that when a transgender inmate is in a men's facility but is femalely oriented, he is entitled or she is entitled to such items as nightgowns, scarves, and necklaces. Isn't that wild? And, of course, when uh, Shiloh, a heavenly queen, has completed the sex change surgery, uh, the court decision says he must be transferred to a female uh, prison facility. I want to talk now about vaccinations, which have been in the news. Uh, they're there. It's on the periphery the last three, four years. Many parents do not want their children to have vaccines because sometimes the vaccine uh, screws up and the child becomes very sick, a quadriplegic or what. It's in an extreme minority of cases, but it does happen. Uh, an issue arises, you know, do you protect, who do you, you got to protect the, most of the people, or do you give in to the one or two who don't want it, or the three or four? Well, the courts have been permitting uh, in recent years parents who do not wish their children to have uh, vaccinations not to have them. Uh, this is the parental right. Of course, that child, though, is going to get very sick if they do become encumbered with the disease or can, if they have the disease, can give it to others. I think one of the reasons we're at this situation is that parents are young. They're in their 20s and 30s, 40s at the latest today, and did not see, have not seen the calamity that befalls people with these diseases that have been eradicated. Uh, I Again, I'm 81. I can remember polio. I had friends who came down with polio. I saw them in wheelchairs. I saw them taken from their homes and sent to mountaintops, the highest in the Adirondacks, to breathe the air up there. Uh, people uh, with measles, measles died. People with measles uh, lost their hearing, okay? Uh, these things just happened. And because of medical science, we were able to limit the number of people who might have an adverse effect to a very small percentage, and that small percentage would have a bad effect because of the uh, vaccine wasn't 100% perfect. Now, there is something called varicella vaccination, chickenpox vaccine, varicella vaccination, chickenpox vaccine. Transverse myelitis 
is a neurological condition in which the spinal cord is inflamed. Tetraplegic is another word for quadriplegic. Chickenpox vaccine can cause quadriplegia. It has only happened in very few cases from 1970 to 2009 in only 37 reported cases. Horrible, terrible, but quadriplegia, bad. You know, from the neck up, the person moves, from the neck down, nothing. A 13-year-old boy became a quadriplegic from the chickenpox vaccine. This was in 2009. His mother took him to the doctor for, you know, got to get the shots. And both the mother and the doctor forgot that he had received the chickenpox vaccine several months before. So he, in effect, had a double shot. Four weeks later, he was a quadriplegic, this nine-year-old, this um, 13-year-old boy. And with all the problems, you can't go to the bathroom alone. You've got to be constantly taken care of. It's horrible. When this condition started presenting itself back in the 1970s and early 1980s, uh, the insurance company, I'm sorry, the drug companies, the pharmaceutical houses were being sued. And the doctors were being sued. And they said, because they have big lobbyists, the drug companies, you've got to remember this. I always say the bad guys with the big lobbyists are the drug companies and Wall Street. Well, the drug companies, uh, they got their lobbyists to work for them in Washington. And a new law came into being in 1986 that gave immunity to the drug companies and to the doctors. Uh, and it also created, because somebody's got to pay the bill for this kid being sick, it also created the United States Court of Federal Claims Vaccine Court. That's what it's called, United States Court of Federal Claims Vaccine Court. And what this court does is they listen to the child's plight, problems, pays all his bills. They, they render a, a decision at one point that's supposed to cover all his bills for the rest of his life. They anticipate the loss of his lifetime income, whether he would have gone to college, what he would have become, and so forth. The one negative is they limit pain and suffering to $250,000, and as a former lawyer in this field, a sum insignificant, insufficient for pain and suffering people uh, suffer, incur from terrible injuries and, and things that infect them and inflict them. Now, who pays this bill if the doctors and the drug companies aren't paying it? Very simple. The taxpayers of the United States, not the drug company, not the doctor. For every shot given for any type of vaccine in this country, there is a 75-cent tax added onto it. So when you take your children, or I took mine, it was added onto the cost of the vaccine. That money goes directly to uh, the federal government. And we all, in effect, pay for these kids who become ill from the situation. Understand, I, I, I happen to think children should get these shots because if you don't, if these things start, these diseases spread. And I remember a lot of them, again, when I was a kid, how people looked and how they, they, they were afflicted. But, again, we have parents today that don't, never saw this. They never experienced it. And we've got to think perhaps here of the greater good. I don't know what's right or wrong, really. Anyhow, the Cleveland Clinic, big medical facility, has recently fueled, in fact, they fueled this in the last week, a vaccine debate. They have brought it to the forefront again. 
Dr. Daniel Nidis is the director of the wellness clinic at the Cleveland Clinic. He came out last week, and he questions whether vaccines are safe for infants. He doesn't recommend vaccines for infants uh, because there are exceptions. They're not 100% perfect, and some kids do get sick as a result of the vaccination. Uh, And the issue generally that arises with vaccinations is, do vaccines cause autism? Now, it's said they don't. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Uh, But here is a, I gave you a quadriplegic result from uh, the chicken vaccine, and now a lot of other vaccines are causing autism, it is claimed. And here you have a big shot doctor, director of the wellness clinic at the Cleveland Clinic, saying, ain't so, don't give vaccines, it hurts the kids, they can come down with something bad. Well, the Cleveland Clinic obviously does not agree with him, and Dr. Natus is having disciplinary uh, disciplinary action uh, being arranged against him. The clinic says we're not going to tolerate this, we're going to have to have a hearing and discipline him. Uh, well, we're, we're all concerned. That's an issue today, vaccine safety in the United States. Today, i got another story that goes with this vaccine thing. Today, Donald Trump, president-elect, asked the Democratic icon, and who also happens to be a vaccine skeptic, Robert Kennedy Jr., prominent Democrat, his father, the former attorney general of the United States, assassinated, president also, uh, brother to President John Kennedy, He asked Robert Kennedy Jr. to chair an official committee, all right, on vaccine safety in the United States, and it was announced that Robert Kennedy Jr. has officially accepted. The only problem with this is he is an open and direct vaccine skeptic. He doesn't believe in vaccines because of the harm they can cause, just like the the gentleman that... uh, Trump nominated to head the EPA. He's not someone who wants the EPA abolished. I don't know what the hell Trump's thinking when he does this things, these things, but this is what, it, what is going on in the vaccine world today. Back in the 1950s, I think it was 1951, uh, a, famous, a song came out, a very popular song, Shrimp Boats. Shrimp boats is a-coming, their sails are in sight. Shrimp boats are a-coming, there's dancing tonight. I'm not a great singer, but I wanted to remind you, if you knew the song, may it touch you. Well, there's a new rendition of the song today, and it's Robots are a-coming, there's no dancing tonight. Robots are a-coming, there's no dancing tonight. Actually, I put that together. And it's because I want to make people aware of what is occurring in the world of robots and auto, um, automation. It's with us. It's on us. It's upon us. It's here. And no one's been talking about it. I anticipated during the presidential campaign that both sides would be discussing the issue because the big issue, my friends, is All these people, all these human beings who are going to be replaced by robots, by machines, where the hell are they going to get jobs? We have enough of an unemployment problem as there is. And it can't be stopped 
because it's proven the corporations are going, manufacturers are going to save money by using robots. And they've got to use them then because, you know, their whole purpose in life is not to keep people employed, but to make profit for the company and the shareholders. So let me, and I've been talking about this and writing about this almost every day recently. Uh, let me give you three examples of what is going on in this world of robots and automation today. Uh, two of these matters I wrote up in my blog on separate days this past week. Let's go to China first. There was a large mining complex in China. The lower levels had human employees taking out, digging out the coal. Well, the mining company replaced all of the workers, all of them, with robots. There's a term called transition in the robot field, and it is when you automate or use robots, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with those employees. You just can't leave them sitting out there with no income, no work, etc. Well, the Chinese, and they've done this in other uh, situations involving robots, do think this way. What are we going to do with the human employees that have been replaced? In this particular situation, where they built robots in to dig the lower levels of the mining complex, they took the, the human employees and had transferred them to jobs digging new subways. China is on a roll digging subways in many large communities, and that's where they put these people to work. Now, you may ask, and I am concerned, why, did they not, why aren't they using robots to do the subways? I don't know. But that is what's happening in China. Now, let's go to Australia. Uh, Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto is a mining company in the northwest section of Australia. They have four mines. The four mines are almost 100% robotic or autonomous mining. 24 hours a day, robots and autonomy. No human beings, okay? The robots are used in the mines for drilling by the robots, bringing rigs in to take the, the, the coal out. Uh, they, the coal is taken out by autonomous rigs and robots, put in trucks which are driverless, which transport the ore to a driverless train where the train automatically loads without human assistance the ore onto the train, and the train drives driverless more than 100 miles to a port where the train itself unloads the ore off of the train. Cool, isn't it? And that's what's happening there in Australia. Now Japan. Japan. This, this really spells out what's happening in the dollar amounts above. The Fukoku Mutual Life Insurance Company, Fukoku Mutual Life Insurance Company, a, has replaced, this month is in the process of replacing, I'm sorry, 34 insurance claim workers, 34 human beings doing insurance claim work. They are replacing these 34 employees with IBM uh, Watson A1 robots, that's what they're called. The cost of these, thir these robots that, that are being used to replace the humans is $1.7 million. And it will require a maintenance fee every year to keep the robots in good shape of $128,000 for all the robots purchased. Now, the savings, the insurance company says that they will save $1.1 million per year 
from employee salaries alone, okay? And if you look at what it's costing, it's costing them a total of $1.7 million to buy the robots. If the return on the money they're saving from employee salaries and benefits is $1.1 million, they're getting a return on their investment in less than two years. Less than two years. Now, Japan isn't concerned either with transition. They don't do any studies. They're not doing any training to see where these human beings are going to go, these former human employees, which is what we must do in this country like China is doing. We have to think. We have to plan. We have to study. Otherwise, in five years, you don't know how many people are going to be out of work in this country, and you complain now about your welfare rolls, your unemployment rolls. It could break our back. I want to talk about political correctness now, political correctness that, that has gone too far very quickly. Uh, you know how the black people today, the Afro-Americans, I'm talking about the young kids, the college-age kids, uh, they've been taking over college administrative offices in the United States uh, because they're saying they want statues taken down of white people and they should be replaced by black people uh, and so forth. I, I think this is all pushing everything too far, but it's even worse in England. Uh, the University of London, the School of Oriental and Asian Studies, uh, the Oriental and the African students say that all philosophers, they study philosophy, should be from Africa and Asia because to study white philosophers' writing is uh, to decolonize, okay, decolonize, their purpose is to decolonize the white institution and make it black and oriental. Uh, they want to get rid of, and they say specifically, Plato, Descartes, Immanuel Kant, and Bertrand Russell. Again, white. A vice chancellor, Sir Anthony Sheldon at the university, has a good handle on it. He says, and I quote, there is a real danger. Political correctness is getting out of control. We need to understand the world as it was and not to rewrite history as some would like it to have been. Not to rewrite history, and this is what these black and oriental kids are trying to do, and it is wrong. You've got to study everybody and everything. Uh, and that is the show for this week. We're coming closely to an end. Let me tell you something quickly about Joan of Arc, though. Uh, Joan of Arc, the, remember the French killed her? It wasn't the English. Everybody thinks it's the English, but the French killed her. And he quickly, a religious group, a religious court of Frenchmen, Catholic religious court. They burned her at the stake. Okay, you know why she got burned at the stake? We all think it was for leading the war and everything else. They couldn't get her for anything. All they could get her for was that she was a cross-dresser. She waged war in men's clothing. She attended court in men's clothing. Okay, and... They didn't like this, okay? The battle and the trial. The most serious and only provable charge was that she dressed as a man. That was taken seriously because there is something in the Bible that talks about this. And it is that, quote, abomination unto the Lord. Dressing like the opposite sex, dressing like a man, is an abomination unto the Lord. Deuteronomy 22.5. Well, that is the show for this week. I thank you for joining me. 
I look forward to being with you again next week. I know most of you listen to the show in its archive version on Block Talk Radio, YouTube, and also to my link with Key West, the Key West Lou website. Uh, I thank you for whatever time you listen to the show, and I'm glad you do. These numbers, I keep telling you every week, <clears throat> are amazing. They keep going up. More and more of you are listening to what I have to share, and I thank you for that. I do a Block Talk Radio show every morning. It's my life in Key West. There's a little seriousness, more humor in it. I tell people what I did the day before, the night before, where I went, if I had a good time, a bad time, who I met, and so forth. And you can find that. You might enjoy it. It takes 30 seconds to read uh, at keywestlou.com, keywestlou.com. Give it a shot. See if you like it. If you do, read it every day. If you don't, forget it. Okay, again, that is the show for this week. I thank you once again for joining me, and I look forward to being with you next week.